When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening and welcome to Wrestling Rewind. I am your host, Angel Amoroso, and I am joined by my co-host. Iron Man Tommy Cairo. The Iron Man Tommy Cairo. And this week we are back again for episode two of our book reading of Master of the Ring. And uh, let's get right back into this, Tommy, because this was a great story last week. We want to... Uh, get right into part two, so we. So, can- yep, this is this book is available. You people, you know, start reading, and um, very interesting. You know, well written, um, good documentation. There's a couple shots of him on the back cover. Um, very interesting man, and we join him right now, just in Southern California. Talking um, about the original nature boy. So that's the path to capital. That's not. That's, I don't think, seriously, they misguided me because this is not the path to capital. This is way before. I don't know why that's the ultimate goal. All right, here we go. Affable Vincent, Vincent James McMahon, a 45-year-old product of New York, was credited with being the stabilizing force in the northeastern force in the northeastern region after years of mismanagement. His action-packed television show from Washington, D.C. revitalized the box office and thrilled long-suffering fans. Off-camera, he stylishly maneuvered between the larger-than-life personalities involved in the New York promotional scheme and was usually a few steps ahead of his opposition. In truth, the entire territory was balanced by grudges and grievances, and since there was a Ripe history of double crosses. Nearly everyone was paranoid. McMahon avoided the pitfalls of his predecessors and let those around him get caught up in the maddening shenanigans. He followed his his vision, and by 1960, he had three functional TV outlets serving 14 states from Ohio to Maine. In addition addition to his beginning of carving out his, his territory, in addition to his television programs in Washington and Pittsburgh, he launched a flavorful live weekly show from the City Arena in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Despite McMahon's success, the New York market remained extremely fragile, and the influence of Jack Pfeffer and Pedro Martinez in 1959-1960 only complicated matters. But things were about to take a negative turn for the head of Capital Wrestling starting with the announcement of a $300,000 lawsuit brought on by the family of a recently deceased promoter. The widow and son of the late Edward Contos, the longtime operator in Baltimore, filed a suit in Washington, D.C. District Court on February 26, 1960, charging McMahon and Tootsmond with antitrust violations. The complaint was one thing, but it had a broader, broader implications relating to the 1956 consent decree signed by the members of the National Wrestling Alliance, 
who collectively voted not to restrain trade in the field of pro wrestling. McMahon didn't sign the decree, but Toots did, and he was on the hook for prosecution. The federal investigation determined he acted with malicious intent. So that stuff was starting right there. Right. So that's where the NWA, uh, WWF feud really started with a lot of the legalities of, uh, you know, who was run aware and who was doing what. So, uh, you know, in in our opinion here, WWF was in the wrong. Yeah. It started out a little bit crooked. You know what I mean? Right. Once once the foundation is set and it's crooked, that building's never going to be straight. So... Yeah. Um, so it said Capital Wrestling was rocked by the news. It soon became apparent that officials from the Department of Justice, way back then, were looking into the situation and assessing the credibility of the claims. As that issue was hanging over McMahon's head, he executed one of the shrewdest moves to date. He bought Nature Boy Roddy, Roddy, brought Nature Boy Buddy Rogers back to the territory. But to backtrack a little bit, the first conversation about a possible return to New York actually occurred months earlier in Ohio between Rogers and his close pal, Bobby Davis. Bobby Davis was a manager, wore a suit, sharp, really sharp, like a shark skin suit he wore and stuff. He was a very good mind for the business. Um, Davis has spent a good chunk of 57 and 58 in the Northeast and not only solidified himself as a heat magnet, but had effectively networked with industry leaders in the area. They loved his work. He was a quick-thinking, fast-talking operator and fit right in with the New York crowd. Toots was especially taken by Bobby's abilities, and they formed a solid friendship. When Davis left in December of 1958, the door was open for the reemergence sometime down the line. So they figured they'd probably work together again. Things were good. Maybe time wasn't right. Rogers and Davis got into a discussion, and Buddy expressed his desire to wrestle in the East again. He wanted to be closer to his mother in Camden and explained his problems with Mond and was convinced that it was impossible it w- that it was p- impossible Brimming with confidence, Davis called Toots and spoke about Buddy's recent success in Ohio. When he mentioned the possibility of future appearances in the New York region, and Mont instinctively recoiled. After digesting the information and considering the potential, Toots asked Davis an important question. He wanted to know if Bobby could handle Rogers. That meant in the event did the tour the tour northeast and could Davis's temper temp, temper Buddy's natural appetite for power behind the scenes? He liked to get his guys in, get them over. Naturally, Rogers wouldn't have the same leeway that he had with Al Heft, and he would have to conform to an entirely new system. Toots recognized the economic opportunities and told Davis, "If you can control him, bring him in." So now he's coming in with the sharp guy with suit and stuff, you know, classy, you know. Right. Uh, money was the key word for both Rogers and mine. Trust between the two men was already fractured, but if anything could mend fences, it was a sleepy diet of hard cash, steady diet, hard cash. 
with Davis and Buddy's ear and McMahon keeping the overall peace, there was little room for selfish manipulations. Personally, Rogers had extra incentive to make the jump to capital. For the first time in his career, he was being properly sponsored as a serious prospective candidate for the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight title. So he had just a gimmick title at this point. Beginning with Davis and continuing with McMahon and Mond, Buddy had consensus support behind him for day, from day one, and it was gratifying. In a way, it was an acknowledgement of his importance in pro wrestling and recognition of his astonishing success. But campaigning as the NWA for the NWA title was an arduous political task and not something that happened overnight. Rogers had to be patient. In the meantime, Capital had come up with an ingenious plan to push Buddy right straight to the top. First, he had to make his local debut as a full-time employee. That came on April 4th, 1960 at the Capitol Arena in Washington, D.C. Buddy wanted to make his initial appearance special, so he brought his handicapped opponent, Buddy Rosen, with him from Ohio. Rosen, a high school track star from Philadelphia, was one of his protégés, and they were acutely familiar with each other's style in the ring. With precision, Rogers called the match and gave Rosen most of the offense. In fact, Rosen looked to be the better grappler and was on his way to getting a pin. At the last second, Rogers turned the tables and achieved victory. On the road that night, Davis asked the nature boy why he went to such great lengths to prop up Rosen's mat ability, and Buddy wisely replied, you're only as tough as the guy you beat. Interestingly, Buddy's match was placed mid-card underneath a tag team bout featuring the Bastion Brothers and a handicapped, prominently starring 24-year-old uh, strongman, Bruno San Martino. So, this hadn't happened yet, so we're, we're before it. Uh, six days later, Rogers outclassed Arnold Stolen, who was working uh, during a broadcast from Bridgeport, further establishing him on Capital TV. This match was different than his bout with Rosen, and all of his strengths were on display. He was obviously a heel, utilizing debilitating kicks and punches, and proceeded to injure Stolen's leg in a short time. From there, he wrapped up the match with his patented figure four grapevine and celebrated on the way out with his manager, Davis, by his side. Like Rosen, Sweet Daddy Siki had migrated. Remember him, Sweet Daddy Siki? Black dude, like Hawaiian or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Migrated to the Northeast for bookings and appeared on the same Bridgeport show. Two other names on the program were significant, not so much to the active storylines or the draw, but for the personal history of Buddy Rogers, Jack Vansky partnered with Tony Altamori, who was Luthez's tag team partner when they were the Sicilians. Uh, like Rosen Street Daddy, Siki had migrated to the Northeast for bookings. Uh, the other names were, were uh, personal history of uh, Jack Vansky, Tony Altamori, and this guy. Guy working under the hood, his name is Jim Austeri, the zebra kid. I'll never forget seeing a picture of him. The zebra mask. It's like so, like, who's that guy? Yeah. Okay. 
uh, incredibly, 18 years later, in 1942, Vansky and also Terry were Buddy Rogers' opponents in the second and third known pro matches. So he was good at, like, helping people along. Like, you allow somebody to look better than you, and you're the one that made that happen. Nobody's – everybody's too selfish to do that. You know what I mean? Like, that's big, especially – Rose was from uh, Philadelphia and you know for him to take a guy who was pretty much unknown at the time and put him over like that you know something that a lot of people should listen to and learn from uh, you know in in sportsmanship. Yeah and that's why the old squash matches were no good because you can't use that guy in the future for anything that you let him get beat down all the time and who did the guy who did the star or the heel beat who did he beat or if he beat a guy that could barely looks like he, he would be walking the streets with a bottle of wine, then it's not impressive. But if some new kid comes in and he's built and he takes the off at the beginning, he's knocking the shit out, bumping a guy all over the place, then it's something, you know? So people have never, never worked long enough to get to the point where they feel like they don't have to be the recipient anymore. I could be, you know, the person that gives. You're only as good as your opponent. Well, and if you knew you looked at him, you might have thought he was a little bit. But actually, he liked to help people. Um, Playboy Buddy Rose. Yeah. The imaginative ideas, idea McMahon came up with to bolster Rogers' standing was to give him a noteworthy new championship honor. Prior to his Bridgeport debut, Buddy was billed as the reigning United States heavyweight wrestling champion a creative distinction with a fantastical lineage. It was later alleged that this title claim was formed by a 1950 tournament victory over Ruffy Silverstein. No such event ever took place, of course not. But in the fog of wrestling, who's going to complain? Capital tattered Buddy as the best wrestler in the country, and by watching Rogers on television, he often looked it. But he was equally controversial, and there seemed to be no limit to his villainous ways. On May 4th, 1960, in Bridgeport, he forced Jack Davis to submit and then surprise attacked the popular chief Big Heart in the aisle, leading to the ring. Fans were outraged as he smashed Big Heart in the head with a chair, opened up a forehead wound, but he was satisfied with his actions and left him in a pool of blood. The attack was unprovoked and senseless in the eyes of spectators, and it was just another reason why Rogers was already the most hated wrestler in the region. The basic blueprint for his, of his matches usually went one of two ways. He either dominated from start to finish, or he portrayed the vulnerable champion on the verge of losing. For the latter, it didn't matter whose opponent was because he sold heavily for both newcomers and journeymen. Buddy covered, cowered in the face of defeat, and the people loved it. They wanted to see him pinned. However, Rogers was far too crappy and did whatever it took to win. Many times when he was on the verge of losing, he casually draped his leg across the bottom rope to save himself, causing the audience to moan in unison. His timing was perfect. Rogers could cheat, trick, and swindle his way to a victory in those situations and stagger from the ring cowardly, and he won as many matches by brawling or scientific means 
leading to the figure four submission finisher. It's pretty cool, you know. Yeah, the original again, original of hardcore. Some of uh, you know the earliest times of and I'm quite, guys. I'm quite, yeah. it up. And I'm quite sure if you checked his influences, you would be able to pick up on how and why he does certain things because. And then you innovate. If you're good enough, you innovate yourself. But essentially, that's what Dynamite Kid was. He was a total amalgamation of every possible style that anybody was wrestling professionally anywhere in the world, and put it all together and made new stuff out of it. And you know, that's when you can do that. And this is the same thing. It's not doing the move, but it's doing the move. And he knows what to do to incite people to get them excited. Have to do much, small amount. The more you do, the more you gotta do. You know. Well, less is more. Yeah. <laughs> all these things mean something, and all you know, all these uh, expressions are disappearing from yeah. society, and they really shouldn't because they would really tell you a lot if you listen to them. Yeah, and and again, TV is a tight shot, right? Uh, the theater is a further shot, so the uh, actors have to reach out to the fans. And that's what these old guys used to do. That's what they did. They point at the guy in the corner, point at you, and then do the shit can like maneuver, like you're throwing them out, and then go like this. Like, and everybody saw it, and he, you knew exactly what he meant when he did it. You right. didn't say, well, what does he mean? Part of it. <laughs> he drew them in because he's far from them. Right. So the gestures have to be, you know, big. Um, So Johnny Berend, he was a, a, another all-timer. Um, buddies feud with Berend lasted several months, and their bouts were high energy from beginning to end. Their death match. Death match. Death match. Back then. What year was this now? A death match? This is amazing. Yeah, early. Uh, it's not even 1960s. 59. Okay. So unbelievable. Death match. Death match. They skipped all over, right over to hardcore and extreme, right. and went right to the death match. Yeah, they all right out the door. Death match, awesome. Go on. I saw an ad for a cage match, but evidently the promotion didn't have much money because they had chicken wire around the ropes. But I remember the image in black and white of the guy bleeding behind the chicken wire, and I was like, it was just so powerful. Wow. Bruno, Bruno's picture done in a reverse, like I want to do. Uh, Dynamite Kid, like a, you know, it's a, a, a negative of him bleeding is on a cover of a magazine called, what was it, an old magazine for men, Argosy, A-R-G-O-S-Y, Bruno on the cover, and it's like, you see the picture, like, oh, like as a kid, I don't know what it was about the blood, I don't know, you know, and, and it was like, just so mysterious, you know, yeah. I remember first seeing the images when he had 11... 12 books, magazines came out every month. And like eight of them had people bleeding on them. Yeah, that's the ones you wanted. Yeah, pretty hardcore. Yeah. Uh, beyond yeah. hardcore then. And way back then. So let's death get match. this death match. Let's hear about this. Death, death match, October 31st in Cincinnati, sold out the music hall, 4,200 tickets. And Rogers gained an important win in their saga. saga, saga. On January 2nd, 1960, Rogers regained his Eastern Championship from Handsome Johnny in Columbus. 
winning in two and three falls. During the last four months of 1959, Rogers made regular trips to Montreal and was just as successful there as he was in Ohio. He used his figure four grapevine to beat Joe Kowalski and captured a Montreal version of the world heavyweight title on September 16th. Two weeks later, he dismantled fan favorite Edouard Carpentier. You remember him? He was a French guy that like was real acrobatic for back then. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, Johnny winning it to three falls. Joe Kowalski. So he beat a lot. He got wins over a lot. And Jersey Joe Walcott, the night special referee who was a boxer, after the contest. Actually, it wasn't much of a scrap, but a lopsided pummeling with the ex-boxing boxer champion doing, doing, giving out the punishment. So you know they were. There was no shoot boxer wrestler. Right, right. <laughs> never, you know the over. There's never been a report that I've ever heard of a pro wrestler getting into an altercation outside of the ring on a row wherever with every sports type from A to Z and not coming out on top. Never. You know you'd hear it because they can't wait to, to tell you that. But it doesn't happen. Well, because wrestlers know how to do more than just punch. You know, yeah. punch kicks. Yeah. And the biggest thing in consideration when someone knows how to take you down and put you in a hold or a move, it's a lot, it's going to be a lot more effective than your punches and kicks. You when that, you know, you know, you can't breathe. How to do that. So. You, you can't breathe when your carotid artery is being blocked. <laughs> right. Exactly. So right. Uh, wrapping up with, with this edition of our book reading, uh, what, what do we got uh, wrapping us up here? Well, I'm going to try to hit all the high notes on the way to the confrontation and the split yes. for a capital that became WWE and, you know, Vince McMahon Sr. and the Bruno Rogers thing. And it was just a matter of both guys can draw in two different places. So go your separate ways and you both got a belt. You know, Bruno, you want, you want to claim he's the WWF champion. So, you know, that's when things really changed. So it's, that's an important part. But I thought we would go through some of the key guys that he, you know, he hung with. And he was respected and given big wins. And they knew he could back it up, you know. So, anyway. Great. Yes. Great stuff. And, um, you know, I, I love these book readings because they really give you uh, an opportunity to get a lot of information and a lot See, of look in. you, you know, you wouldn't hear yeah. unless it was coming from this. And a lot of people, you know, they don't go out and buy books and everything. And I, you have hundreds of books. Yeah. May I say hundreds? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So, uh, so, you know, listen, I don't see any, dude, I'll never, ever. When I found out about Crowbar Press, and when it, when he first started, the first thing you, I think I could ever, you ever bought was Mick Foley's was like the first book to really start the flow of all the books coming out. And then I stopped buying anything that was like, I, as soon as you get to the WWE or W, not the old WWF, I'll listen. As soon as you get into the like late eighties, I, I, I won't watch it. I won't listen to it. So that's the way I, I judge what I what I watch by you know time frame. Um, you know, it's not interesting. 
horror, which is uh, a lot more interesting than some of the more current errors of books. But you have them all, and sooner or later, we'll get to every single one of yep. them. And uh, so this book, again, for everyone, was called? This is Master of the Ring, Camden, New Jersey-born, uh, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, uh, innovator. Uh, and you have to think about this. Innovator like, of the death match. We, we've yeah. learned so much about this. Not only the innovator of hardcore, it seems. That's blood, Lots of fan interaction, making people wild uh, with, with his yeah. movement, But also the innovator of the death match. And the think about this. He didn't have a script or he was probably just saying, I'm going to I know how I think I know enough because I can make the people do whatever I wanted to do. So let me just take my own lead. And this probably wasn't him listening to too many people because he was already like established. And what's this guy, old guy with a cigar going to tell me? I'm in there. I know when I push the button, the people respond. So you were left to maybe be your own creator and you know, have your own storyline that you create, you know? Well, I think that there's so many. Uh, nature boys that have followed this one yeah. and we we really need to get back on this book and cover uh a few more chapters to maybe get a few more stories in and we yeah. will get back to that in the next book reading here on wrestling rewind join us every sunday evening at 7 p.m on monty and the pharaohs network on youtube where we're there with uh, wrestling rewind having book readings and wrestling archives and and just teaching you pro wrestling from a to z so if you want to get your wrestling lesson tune in every sunday at seven for myself uh, Angel Amoroso and my partner, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. Have a good night, everybody. Have we got nice the books. Night. You don't have to buy them. You just got to tune in. Have a nice night and a nice life. Good night. <laughs>